a 24-year-old male had been using a substance recreationally for the last six years. He began to develop very painful urination, or dysuria, but ignored it and continued using the substance. The painful urination became more frequent, needing to urinate up to 40 times a day, frequently with blood in the urine, or hematuria. The frequent painful, bloody urinations finally prompted the patient to seek health care. On assessment, abdominal imaging showed swollen, enlarged kidneys, or hydronephrosis, and a small fibrotic bladder that could hold no more than 120 milliliters, or half a cup of urine. A bladder biopsy showed ulcerative cystitis, with bladder cells sloughing off into the urine, and inflammatory eosinophils penetrating through multiple layers of the bladder. He eventually stopped using the substance, and the blood in his urine did stop, but the frequent painful urination persisted. Despite medical therapies, the patient had to have their bladder removed, or a cystectomy, and have it replaced with a piece of their bowel, known as an ileal conduit. What psychoactive substance comes at the cost of potentially losing your bladder? Well, if you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. Hey everybody, you are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from people who manage poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. With me as always, my lovely co-host, Toxa. Hello, Ryan. Lovely day, isn't it? It is a lovely day. A good day to have full hearts, good intentions, and functioning bladders. Bladders. I had one of those ones. What would a robot need a bladder for? What does a human need a diamond ring for? Need has nothing to do with it. The 80s were a crazy time to be a robot. Let's not dive into that topic. Some things are better left unsaid. So, on to the case. We have a young gentleman who is using a substance regularly for up to six years. Sometime during that use, he developed painful bloody urination related to severe changes in his bladder. So severe that he eventually had to have his bladder replaced. Before we reveal what it is, let's hear what the listeners think. Toxo, can you hit the email protocols? Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the Poison Verse. Our first email comes from listener Patrick Rose. He guesses ketamine. There are well-documented case reports of ketamine cystitis. Although I'm unsure of the proposed mechanism, there are a few drugs I know of that cause hemorrhagic cystitis, like cyclo and i-phosphamide. So I would imagine you could draw a relation between the amine and anode metabolism and the production of acroline. Wow, these are all fantastic points to bring up. So Patrick is guessing ketamine, and he's assuming the mechanism is related to the production of acroline, a well-known urinary toxin that leads to hemorrhagic cystitis, one in the oncology world that is produced by chemotherapeutics iphosphamide and cyclophosphamide. This hemorrhagic cystitis from acrolein is so common in the oncology world after these chemo drugs that we actually give them an antidote alongside it called mesna, which will bind the acrolein that these drugs make and prevent the cystitis. Now, I'm not familiar with ketamine producing acrolein, but it's a wonderful thing to bring up and something to have on your differential for drug-induced hemorrhagic cystitis. As for ketamine being the toxin, well, we'll have to keep listening. 
Our next listener, Ed Kroon, actually sent in an audio clip. Tuxo, can you roll it? I pick ketamine. Back in the mid-2000s, I worked in a tox department, and I remember melamine in baby formula and pet food was a huge problem. Uh, the melamine was being substituted for protein as a particularly evil way to save money. And when I think about a uh, chemical coming out of the urine and damaging the bladder and the kidneys, I think amine. So I'm thinking ketamine, a psychoactive. The audio gets a little fuzzy there, but I think you get the point. Ed's guess is for ketamine. Also, I love audio clips. Any listeners, if you want to send in your guess as a clip, please do. We'll play it on the show. Now, Ed's guess is not only for ketamine, but he also brings up a fantastic talks-related historical event. The adulteration of many foods in the 2000s, like milk, with melamine to falsely increase the measured protein content that ended up leading to renal injury in many patients. See, proteins are made up of amino acids, amine, meaning they all contain nitrogen groups. A cheap way to make your food look like it has more protein was to add nitrogenous compounds to the food, specifically melamine which would be read as protein by the detectors used in the food industry. Unfortunately, melamine has some pretty nephrotoxic effects and can lead to kidney stones, chronic kidney disease, kidney inflammation, all sorts of problems. This is a great topic and too much to talk about on this show. I'm going to throw an article about this in the show notes that you can check out later. All right, let's hear our next guesser. This one comes from listener Liam Walsh. Hi, Ryan. I think the toxin for the upcoming episode is ketamine. The patient has experienced ketamine bladder syndrome from chronic ketamine use. It is possible secondary to cellular apoptosis of urothelial cells secondary to exposure to ketamine in the urine, although, to my knowledge, the mechanism isn't fully understood. Wow. Liam, I think you understand the mechanism pretty well. Uh, He goes on to say, love the show and greetings from New Brunswick, Canada. Thanks. Liam Walsh, EM pharmacist. Hey. Thank you, Liam, for emailing the show, and I think for being our first Canadian email. And we have quite a few more guesses for ketamine. Here we have Joe Kennedy, who says, it's ketamine, right? Question mark? Joe. And listener Laura Kalman says, ketamine? Question mark? Question mark? It seems like everybody is right on track. There's a pretty limited deferential for somebody urinating blood after use of a psychoactive substance. But here we do have one other guess... From listener Kemal Zaldivar. He says, Hello, Ryan. I'm an ED pharmacist and I really enjoy your podcast. Hey, thanks, Kemal. Thanks for listening. I believe the patient in your recently posted case teaser is a user of ketamine or one of its unscheduled analogs. This is a great point that Kemal is bringing up. There are many case reports that involve ketamine, frequent urination, hematuria, shrunken bladders, and hydronephrosis. Some of the symptoms persist after ketamine is halted. Six years of daily use implies an enormous amount of ketamine. This would be hard for an 18-year-old to consistently obtain through the age of 24. This makes me think it wasn't ketamine, but an analog such as methoxetamine, which is not explicitly illegal and can be taken orally. I know they've induced cystitis in rats by giving them large doses of methoxetamine, but I don't know of any human cases so far. Thanks for all the great content, Kemmel. What a great guess. And brings up an important topic, ketamine analogs like etacyclidine or methoxetamine. 
Methoxetamine is illegal in a lot of places. In the United States, it's not explicitly scheduled, but it is probably covered under the Federal Analog Act. If you're not sure what that is, go back and listen to our bonus episode about Delta-8 THC. It has to do with drugs that look similarly enough to other scheduled substances that you can treat them like a scheduled substance. So, potentially, people are getting methoxetamine. And I would agree with you, Kemmel, that seems very hard to get ketamine for that long. However, these days, with the dark web and other sources of diversion, it seems like people have access to just about anything they want. In fact, one route of access to these drugs is brought up by listener Jordan Woolham. Hey there, hope you're warming up nicely in Wisconsin, although I'm unsure it really affects Toxo that much. Well, thank you, Jordan. It actually is starting to get above freezing here in Wisconsin. It usually only takes till June. Jordan goes on to say, Given the mention of a psychoactive substance and hematuria, I'm guessing someone broke into a veterinarian's office and has been enjoying a little bit too much ketamine. Can't wait to hear about their labs, social history, etc. Looking forward to tuning in. Jordan Willem, PharmD. Jordan brings up another great point. Yet another guess for ketamine and suggesting potential diversion from veterinary medicine or really any medical supply is a common area for people to get access to these drugs. Well, I guess I need to pick harder toxins because every single person got it right. But I guess I shouldn't be surprised because we have some brilliant listeners. While everyone had great guesses, our listener winner this week is going to be Liam Walsh, an emergency medicine pharmacist from New Brunswick, Canada. Great job providing a correct guess and a great transition into the cellular mechanisms of toxicity from ketamine. And he is probably one of the few listeners who has a colder winter than us. Solidarity, Liam. Reach out to the show at TalksTalk1 at gmail.com and we will hook you up with one of our highly coveted Poison Lab stickers. For application to any hard, non-porous Canadian surface. Now, let's take a dive into where this bloody problem came from. Toxo, let's talk about the history of ketamine. Ketamine history. I told you the 80s were a wild time. No need to dig into my past. Not your history, Toxo. Also, you don't have NMDA receptors. Substances do not affect you. Well, I do have feelings. And your attitude can certainly affect them. No need to be so rude about things. We are not doing this today, Toxo. On with the show. Our story begins in the 1950s at Detroit's Park Davis Drug Company. Researchers were investigating the effects of a new anesthetic known as fencyclidine, or PCP. That's right. Most people hear PCP and think of angel dust or someone trying to lift a police car. But in fact, it was widely used as an anesthetic for much of its early history. They initially noticed that when monkeys were given PCP, their eyes would be wide open while you were performing surgery on them, but they didn't seem to be experiencing any pain. Their mind appeared to be disassociated from what was going on in their body. This was just as effective in humans who were undergoing surgery, and thus it was used for many years. Unfortunately, PCP came with its share of side effects. Some patients would become occasionally too excited from the compound, not resting quietly while you performed the procedure, but acting completely delirious, sometimes for up to 12 hours due to the long-acting effects of PCP. Not ideal when you're trying to perform a surgery or recover a patient in the post-operative acute recovery area. Recognizing that the compound had the analgesic effects that they desired, but they needed a shorter duration of action, 
The Park Davis Research Group cycled through many different derivatives of PCP looking for a better anesthetic. And in fact, this is where we get some of those ketamine derivatives we talked about earlier in the show, like PCE or ectocyclidine. But by 1962, they found a special derivative of PCP that had a ketone and an amine addition on it. It was shorter acting than PCP and caused less hallucinations than the other compounds they looked at. Thus, the ketone amine PCP was born, or ketamine for short. By 1964, it was tested on humans, once again back in Michigan, but this time in their prisons and not in their operating rooms. And this is why I have to renew a certificate in ethics for human subjects research each year. Oh, how far we have come. The prisoners that were given this experimental psychoactive compound known as ketamine described a feeling of floating through space and being unable to feel their limbs while on the drug. The researchers struggled with a way to describe this disconnected effect that ketamine produced. Some suggested schizophrenic effect, but they realized that wouldn't make it a very marketable drug. So, one of the researchers brought up their internal struggle on naming the substance to their wife, Tony. She mulled it over and suggested the word dissociative to describe the effects of feeling you were floating through space and unable to feel your limbs. And thus, the dissociative anesthetic ketamine was born, all thanks to the clever wordplay of one of the researchers' better halves. Now, ketamine had a long and successful run in the operating room. And while that is where it cut its teeth, its use has expanded far and wide in the medical field. If you have a problem, there's a ketamine that can solve it. It's used for many indications. Severe depression, pain, chemical restraint for agitated patients, sedation so we can put joints back into place, seizures, asthma, you name it. I have personally watched hundreds of patients disassociate on ketamine in the emergency department. It's a frequently used drug and often leads to some fun stories, like people singing us Christmas carols while we put their hips back into place and wake up not having any idea what happened. Sounds just like the 80s to me. Well, actually, before the 80s, Toxo. Unfortunately, the medical field was not the only group of people to pick up on the dissociative effects of this substance. Around the time of the Vietnam War, ketamine abuse started popping up and has found its way into the bloodstreams of many curious experimenters since then. Recreational users call using ketamine getting lost in the K-hole when they disassociate, and it goes by many names, Special K, Vitamin K, Cat Valium, not sure where that one came from, but it quickly gained popularity as a club drug. It's available as a liquid, a powder, or as tablets, and users will snort or inject ketamine. They'll even take it orally, but the bioavailability is a little lower. It's estimated that here in the U.S., some 3 million people have used ketamine since the age of 12, with the average age of use being around 19. But its use is much more widespread in certain Asian countries, where it's one of the predominant substances of abuse, though it was a group out of Canada that published the first series of ketamine-induced cystitis back in 2007. And more and more have been popping up since then. We've now been battling this ketamine-induced disease for over 14 years, with little headway into therapeutic strategies for treatment. And despite it existing for the last 15 years, this is likely the first time many healthcare providers have ever heard of ketamine-induced cystitis. So what exactly is going on? 
What kind of symptoms does somebody have when they develop ketamine cystitis? And how does it cause this toxicity? Let's dive in to our toxic mechanisms and clinical effects section. Toxic mechanisms. For anyone who gets queasy when I start talking about physiology, you're in luck. Because at the end of the day, we don't actually know how ketamine deals its damage to the bladder. So we don't have that much to discuss mechanistically. Part of it might be due to the fact that the bladder is exposed to the highest concentrations of ketamine than any other part of the body. All of the ketamine that the body is exposed to, as well as the metabolites of ketamine, like norketamine, end up going to the urine to be disposed of. So you get really high concentrations of ketamine and its metabolite in the urine. Now, when you take human urothelial cells and expose them to ketamine, it's been shown in benchtop lab studies that it increases intracellular calcium to very high levels via something called the inositol triphosphate pathway. Don't worry too much about that. But there's this thing inside your cell called an endoplasmic reticulum, and it holds a lot of calcium. When you stimulate that inositol triphosphate pathway, it tells the endoplasmic reticulum to release a lot of calcium. And these sustained high concentrations of intracellular calcium lead to apoptosis, or programmed cell death. Beyond a direct toxic effect, there is also an inflammatory component. Remember, inflammation is caused by your immune system, a system designed to recognize self from not self. And for some reason, ketamine makes your body think your bladder is not self, and it begins to attack it. Or at least that's what it looks like when we look at the bladder under a microscope. Bladder biopsies show inflammatory cells throughout multiple layers of the bladder. And patients with ketamine cystitis tend to have elevations of inflammatory markers in the blood, like interleukin or interferon. And you can find eosinophils and IgE, an antibody, at very high levels in people who have ketamine cystitis. Finally, some think that there's microvascular damage from ketamine stimulation of NMDA receptors on the vasculature in the bladder. But at the end of the day, we do not know the mechanism for how this causes this painful cystitis. But it can lead to severe and sometimes irreversible bladder damage. Users who develop ketamine cystitis begin to report pelvic pain, usually feeling like their bladders are very full, accompanied by frequent painful urination, sometimes up to 40 times a day and often with blood. This is consistent with the ulcerative cystitis that ketamine causes. When the bladder becomes damaged, the cells slough away. And if the cells keep sloughing away and we don't replace any of that tissue, we will end up with holes in our bladder. So the body tries to replace those cells by depositing scar tissue. Scar tissue is fibrous connective tissue deposited into the area where your other tissue used to be. This is non-functional tissue, not bladder cells, but collagen and different connective tissues. It can't stretch or signal like bladder cells can. And as the bladder becomes fibrous and scarred, it is smaller and less compliant. There's not as much urine that can be stored in it which is why users have this feeling of bladder fullness as well as the frequent need to urinate. Now, just exactly how long you need to use ketamine to induce cystitis is not really clear. Some rat models use continuous exposure for up to 12 weeks to get cystitis in rats, so it does appear there's some degree of chronicity that needs to occur. A survey of about 100 ketamine users at private rehab centers found that the average time for their lower urinary tract symptoms to start was about 24 months, some longer and some shorter. 
Interestingly, they found that those who snorted ketamine were more likely to develop urinary symptoms than those who smoked it, but whether this is just association is not clear. And finally, another study looking at patients who had ketamine cystitis found users with the least symptoms had been using for two years or less and using less than 500 milligrams a week. So it does appear that there's some degree of consistent exposure that's needed for these symptoms to develop. Although, I doubt anyone's really looked at the bladders of those who are acutely exposed to ketamine. So, we have no idea how much or how little you need to develop this effect, but it does appear that consistent daily use and longer durations of use are associated with a higher frequency of developing symptoms. We can even see ketamine cystitis in patients prescribed oral ketamine for chronic pain. When patients stop using ketamine, the direct toxic effect seems to subside. Patients will often report that the hematuria, or blood in their urine, will resolve when ketamine is stopped using. But the painful and frequent urination will often persist because the inflammatory or fibrotic damage to the bladder has already been done. And the extent of damage and degree of symptoms are consistent with a dose-response effect. The longer you've been using ketamine and the more you use ketamine, the worse off your bladder is. When the bladder gets looked at with a scope, you can see painful ulcerative cystitis. You even see swelling and edema through the tubes that connect your bladder to your kidneys, called the ureters, and your kidneys themselves. This is called hydronephrosis, because all the fluid is backing up since the bladder is unable to hold an adequate amount of urine. Treatment for ketamine cystitis is directed at reducing the symptoms of painful frequent urination. As we'll talk about in a minute, nothing has really been shown to reverse the damaging effects of ketamine. And that's why the number one treatment for ketamine cystitis is to stop doing ketamine. Abstinence. One of our core principles of toxicology. Decontamination. Get the substance away from the patient. In case series of ketamine cystitis, patients who stopped using did show improvement of symptoms over time. And unfortunately... All those symptoms came back when patients relapsed. An unfortunate frequent reality when managing this patient population. After abstinence, we have a pretty limited amount of drugs we can use to try to treat the symptoms of frequent urination and bladder pain. Anti-inflammatories like steroids or NSAIDs have been evaluated, and some with good response for patients. Remember, frequently inflammatory cells and inflammatory mediators are found in high concentrations in the bladder. Other patients receive anticholinergics, anticholine, like acetylcholine, to reduce bladder reactivity. Remember, acetylcholine is one of our primary neurotransmitters in the rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. Urination is part of resting and digesting. And when acetylcholine is released, it squeezes the smooth muscle in the bladder and causes you to evacuate the contacts. So patients might receive anticholinergic drugs to block the body's signal to the bladder to urinate. But when you think about the mechanism of ketamine cystitis, it's not really from too much cholinergic tone. It's from a small fibrotic inflamed bladder. So there's question as to whether there's really any role for anticholinergics in these patients. Then there's a few other last-ditch therapies, like using Botox, a toxin that prevents nerves from being able to release acetylcholine to paralyze the bladder and prevent it from contracting, or using something called hyaluronic acid, which, through many mechanisms, promotes regeneration of bladder mucosa. At the end of the day, none of the drugs reverse the damage done by ketamine, and they're really just directed at controlling symptoms. And for some patients, the drugs alone are not enough leading to our definitive treatment for ketamine cystitis. Surgery. Taking out the bladder. 
or replacing it with a part of the bowel. Patients will frequently undergo something called augmentation enterocystoplasty. Enero, like enteric, meaning gut. This is a bladder reconstruction surgery, where they clip out most of your bladder and replace it with a segment of your bowel. The bladder of these ketamine users are too fibrotic or damaged to stretch out enough. So they clip the bladder out and replace it with stretchy bowel tissue, which can expand when you need to hold urine and act as a bladder. Another option is to have a full cystectomy with an ileal conduit placement. This is where they clip out your whole bladder and then take a small portion of your bowel called the ileum and use it to create a bladder storage container. These are all invasive procedures, sometimes with serious postoperative complications, and they can forever change the urinary system of the user. Wow, Ryan, these ketamine users might need to ask themselves if the juice is worth the bladder squeeze. Probably a good point, Toxo. Is it really worth going to the K-hole if you're going to leave your bladder there? And just another example of how medically unsupervised use of a substance can lead to some serious off-target effects. When we usually think of people using substances for euphoria, we think about overdoses or other nasty fatal complications. But truly, drugs can impact all of our organs, including your bladder. Anyways, I think that'll wrap it up for today's episode. I wanted to shine a light on an unusual side effect of a drug that many patients are prescribed and many people are using recreationally. Quite a few of the healthcare providers listening to this show might have been surprised to find out the drug they're prescribing has the potential to cause this. Let's do a quick one-minute summary of what we learned today. Ketamine is an analog of PCP with many different medical uses, and in the short term appears to be very safe. However, after finding its way into recreational drug users' hands who are using it chronically, we discovered a newer side effect, ketamine cystitis. From a direct toxic or inflammatory effect on the bladder, causing smaller fibrotic bladders, leading to painful, frequent, and usually bloody urination. Treatment is directed at managing the symptoms, reducing inflammation, and sometimes fully replacing the bladder. I think that'll wrap it up for today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe to our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at LabPoison or myself at EMPoisonFarmD. Check out our Instagram, Talks underscore Talk, or our Facebook page, The Poison Lab. Any new episodes we release will be announced on all of those social media platforms. As well, all free medical education resources, games, and lectures are available at www.thepoisonlab.com. Lastly, keep your ears open. We'll be releasing teasers to our next episodes on the podcast feed. Describe a case without revealing what the poison is. If you think you know what toxin is responsible, email in to talkstalk1 at gmail.com so you can take part in the next episode. That'll be it for today. Thanks for listening. Hope you can tune in next time. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Contact your doctor for health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. The opinions expressed on this show do not represent those of our employers. This show is fully written and shortly produced by Ryan Feldman. Don't forget to give it a share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Ta for now.